What's in a name? Would that which we call a defensive shift by any other name work as well? We'll ask Joe Sheehan, author of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, May the 19th. It's show number 27 of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. We'll talk with Joe Sheehan, the author of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, about what we should be calling defensive shifts, the significance of high strikeout games, those surging Astros, A-Rod and Barry Bonds, Bryce Harper studs and duds, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Houston shortstop prospect Carlos Correa. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at a sketchy San Diego infield situation. And in our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Freddie Galvis, Keone Kayla, and Priston Tucker. It's another big Tuesday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? What do we call a defensive shift? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday edition, our feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan, the author of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, a frequent contributor to Sports Illustrated magazine. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick, always good to talk to you. How you doing? Doing very well, thanks. Uh, more importantly, uh, how are your fantasy teams doing this year? Yeah, it's not been a great year so far. Uh, my, uh, I, I have a mixed league, a local mixed league roto league with uh, a bunch of good guys in it. Alex Cushing, uh, Corey Schwartz, you know from MLB.com. Right. Kind of getting knocked around a little bit. Uh, I decided to just punt pitching and took a bunch of guys who just haven't really worked out. Jesse Hahn, Aaron Sanchez, Drew Pomeranz, young pitchers who I really liked coming into the year. It's early enough that they could turn it around, but uh, my, my pitching stats are really kind of dragging everything else down. Uh, and I don't seem to be having a whole lot of success. We've got a $100 stab budget, and I seem to be the guy who misses by a dollar on all the guys I want to pick up. <laughs> so I, I do have a score sheet team. I'm a huge fan of playing score sheet. Right. My team's doing pretty well. I, I nailed... Pretty much the entire pitching staff. Uh, Zach Greinke, Garrett Cole, Shelby Miller just did a very good job picking up pitching there. So feels like every game is two one one way or the other, and I've been uh, been winning them. So and I also uh, I played the the Chandler Park game actually uh, in in April, and I just I just missed out. I was we were tied for I was tied for first with uh, two days to go, and I ended up losing at the end. So I got a little late season drama uh, just after Easter, which was kind of fun. That's one of the good things about that monthly game is that, you know, you, you can get close, but if you fall a little short, you can get right back on and, and try again. That's also the appeal, of course, of daily fantasy baseball. Have you tried that? I have, actually. I played a lot of daily fantasy in the first uh, few weeks of the season. I actually had not really played it before. Um, I did not have very much success. I There was one point on some Thursday night where I was leading one of the uh, – one of the contests. I was actually in first place overall, and then I slipped back. I think I ended up finishing 12th. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot to be learned there. Uh, I probably want to, I'm probably going to sit down and put more time into it. I did find that it changed how I watched games at night. It, I'm not saying it like made it hard to work, but it, it, it changed the way I was watching the games, and I wasn't really enjoying that. Whereas with season-long fantasy, you don't, you know, your players do well, your players do poorly, it's one night. Right. In 
daily fantasy, you just kind of become a little bit too obsessed, I think, with the individual performances. And uh, it just it wasn't really working for me in terms of being a writer. Now, I think if you're not a writer, if you're not watching the games for other purposes, um, it's something that it can be a lot of fun. But as somebody who's trying to watch the games for, you know, work purposes, it was kind of distorting my evening. So, you know, I'll probably bounce in and out as the year goes on. Um, I, it's hard to argue with the popularity of it. I, the more I talk to people in the industry and, you know, kind of talk to people just in fantasy, it's definitely the thing that's taking over. I mean, there's actually a segment now on Baseball Tonight. Patrick, I think you uh, you know our good friend uh, Derek Carty. He's sure. actually on there on the set of Baseball Tonight giving daily fantasy recommendations. So that's that's pretty impressive. I never thought before about the way that we consume the games themselves and the effect that playing uh, fantasy baseball in general, but daily fantasy in particular, will affect that because it seems I hardly ever watch a game to watch the game. I'm usually bouncing back and forth between whatever starting pitcher I have that night and whatever stack of players I have that night. And at the end of the night, I know how my daily fantasy team did within a you know a point or two, but I have no idea who won the games. It's, and I would compare it to, honestly, the way we consume football now. Yes. Football on Sundays tends to be, how did my team do, or how did the guys in my various picks, pools, or whatever did, and less concerned with the league as a whole. I'm not saying that's the case for everybody, but I, it was a very much a fantasy football experience for me, and it just, uh, that works for me when it comes to football. I mean, I enjoy football Sundays doing that. But it didn't work for me for baseball. I enjoy baseball for for other reasons. So, you know, we'll see. I I, like I say I think this is this is an unstoppable train right now. I I completely believe in the business model and um, the people who are running it. I think it's going to be wildly successful. It may just be that it's not for me. The business model seems to depend, though, Joe. And this is a not a criticism. It's just a, an observation. Uh, it seems to depend on a steady inflow of people with money to lose. And at some point, do you think that there's the possibility that the people who are losing consistently outside of the uh, you know people who can't stop themselves from playing games and losing consistently, but the smarter guy who thinks he's pretty knowledgeable about baseball realizes, hey, you know, I deposited X hundred of dollars in this and I never seem to win and somebody's winning a lot. I keep reading about it and... Uh, the the so-called dead money starts leaving the pool that doesn't leave very much for the rest. Well, I saw this up close uh, in another field. I was a poker player and fairly serious one for about six seven years in the two thousands. I got it. I started playing poker right at the time that the uh, the caps no limit games were coming into casinos where it was no limit but you could only put X amount of dollars on the table and there was a ton of money coming into the game at that point. This would be 2003, around the time that Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker, and you know, the kind of the poker boom online was also fueled by the online game. And what, uh, you saw a lot of the same thing, where the, eventually there's only so much dead money that can come into the pool, and the games become harder and harder, which they did over you know, a 12-year period. The same thing happened online. Of course, online had the issue of legality, and essentially you cut off new people coming in by making it impossible and, frankly, illegal to put money onto the sites. Now, for what I can tell, Daily Fantasy is only going to have one of those problems. And I don't know, I think the, the market for fantasy baseball is so much larger than it is for playing poker. Um, frankly, there's just a lot more people who like baseball than poker, and there's also a lot more people who think, hey, I can do this. Right. Um, people have a familiarity with fantasy through season long. People have a familiarity through uh, with daily fantasy through playing things like foot, playing football daily fantasy. I, I think that the size of the market means that if there is eventually a problem like that, it's well off into the future. 
Joe, in the last week or so, returning to real baseball, we've had two sensational strikeout performances. Uh, what, if anything, do the big sudden eruptions of uh, Michael Pineda and Corey Kluber say about the state of the game, or at least the state of pitching in the game? Well, we, we know that pitchers are throwing to a strike zone that's as large as we've ever been able to measure. It's a little bit smaller this year, and I want to credit uh, John Rogeli of the Harbaugh Times for doing a lot of the research in terms of the size of the strike zone, the shape, the dimensions. Um, and he found that it's got a little bit smaller this year and a little bit higher, calling quite quite a, the, 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 the low strike that they were last year. But it's unquestionably a great time to be a pitcher. Um, you're also being asked to do less than you ever have before. I mean, even in the last 15 years, we've gone from maxing pitchers out in the 120s to really maxing them out in the 110s. You think about the Corey Kluber start the other day. Um, 18 strikeouts, no walks in eight innings. He had 113 pitches thrown at the end of eight. And I think even 10 years ago, he would have been sent back out for the ninth, figuring, okay, maybe he ends up around 130 pitches. And, you know, Brad Mills, who was the acting manager for Terry Francona that night, pulled him after eight, went to Cody Allen to protect the lead. Now, I'm fine with him making that decision. I think there are very good reasons to not have Kluber start the ninth there. But I think it's an indication that, you know, we just ask so little of starting pitchers these days relative to even 10, 15 years ago. Uh, you know, Pineda only went seven innings in his start. He, stuck, he struck out 16 men, didn't walk anybody. The right. game has changed fairly dramatically in that regard. So, you know, and to that end, we're also asking very little start of relief pitchers anymore. Relief pitchers are fairly rarely asked to go more than one inning. So you combine, you know, less work for each individual pitcher with a, a larger strike zone. And frankly, all pitchers are throwing harder. Uh, the average fastball velocity keeps going up. Uh, you know, the cut, cut fastball has really changed the balance of power between hitters and pitchers. Just everything right now, it's, it's a pitcher's game. At the same time, though, Joe, we read about the culture of baseball that offensive players, batters go up there, they're not afraid to strike out. They're much more willing to strike out, and the teams are much more accepting of players striking out in exchange for the promise of the long ball. To what extent do you think the that willingness or that cultural change has also been implicated in the increasing number of strikeouts over and above the ability of pitchers to throw strikes as you describe? I don't think, I think it's a smaller factor than generally gets discussed. There was, a, there was some uh, talk in the preseason about, oh, you know, hitters just you know, change their approach. It's not that simple. And one of the reasons we're here is because we know that, sabermetrically speaking, strikeouts are not much worse than any other route. Strikeouts correlate with drawing walks. Strikeouts correlate with hitting for power. So there's value in taking that big rip on two strikes. We also know that you know weak contact just isn't very valuable. Weak contact gets turned into an out, and I think that we're trading off between grounders to second base and strikeouts. You know the trade off isn't that great, especially when some of those grounders to second base are going to turn into double plays. Let's not forget too that defenses, are, particularly infield defenses, are becoming more efficient these days as well. Um, maybe putting a ball in play made more sense you know a hundred years ago, seventy years ago. But, you know, modern baseball defenses are just wildly efficient relative to their predecessors. So all of those things have combined to make, you know, the, the kind of, you know, two-strike approach, to use that term, uh, less efficient, less valuable than, you know, we, we might have been maybe 50 years ago. I think it's an overstated case. I think most of, most of what we're seeing today in terms of the batter-pitcher relationship is increased velocity, a larger strike zone, and a smaller workload on pitchers in that order. 
On an individual basis, Joe, and looking at it from the fantasy perspective especially, what do performances like this say about Corey Kluber or Michael Pineda as individual pitchers? Do these outstanding performances augur anything for the rest of the season? You know, I remember when, uh, God, this was a Bill James concept from 20-odd years ago called Signature Significance, and there was this idea that if you did something truly great, and I think that the example might have been Jason Beret, 13 strikeouts and no walks in a game. Like, if, if you knew nothing else about the person than that start, it showed that he had some clear, great level of talent. You just, you didn't do something like that without, you know, being a great pitcher. Now, I'm not sure that necessarily holds today. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I mean, Kuro won the Sion last year. Let's, you know, let's not write him off. I think it also shows that the best way to get a, an out with the Cleveland Indians defense behind you is to strike out, is to strike out the batter. Um, but I, I think that they, they show the upside uh, of each pitcher. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to resist the idea of signature significance, if only because I resist the idea of one start. I think that anybody good enough to be in the major leagues is probably good enough to have a day. You know, we've seen this throughout baseball history, guys just going out there and you know, having one great day, whether it's a starting pitcher or a hitter or what have you. But you, know, you can make the argument that if you know, it, it, the signature significance of an 18-strikeout no-walk game or 16-strikeout no-walk game is, is great. I actually did some research for a piece that's coming out in Sports Illustrated this week. 15-strikeout no-walk games, in other words, you know, at least 15-strikeouts and no-walks, are actually more rare than no-hitters. Wow. And if you look at the pitchers who have achieved that, you find that those pitchers, it's actually a more impressive list than the list of pitchers who have thrown no hitters. You, you look at the last 20 years, you, know, you go back to the strike, and you've got guys like Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson having you know, three or four of those starts each. And you just don't see that with no hitters. So to some extent, what, what Kluber and Pineda did is as or more impressive than throwing a no hitter. I remember Jason Beret's game. Uh, he was actually on my fantasy roster that year, and it certainly was not uh, a significant signature accomplishment in any way because he just wasn't a good pitcher. So um, maybe more a case of catching lightning in a bottle. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And Joe, uh, recently I enjoyed your analysis of the Astros talking of strikeouts, and I've been hearing a lot of chatter online, the various experts and touts, how the Astros are proving, and I'm using proving in quotation marks, it's possible to win with a free-swinging high strikeout offense. What's your take on that position? I think that's already been proven. I think we've had a lot of high strikeout offenses, and it wasn't until the, the 2014 Royals that everybody decided, oh, no, no, you know, you can, not, you can strike out very little and, and be good. But we noticed that the 2014 Royals actually weren't that good an offensive team. But as I said earlier, strikeouts correlate with drawing walks because you're working deep, deeper counts, and they correlate with power because you're generally taking big swings trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. The Astros offense, yeah, it's gonna, it's going to have a chance to break the record for strikeouts in a season, but they're also fifth in the American League in walks, as we're talking about this today. They're first in home runs, and because of that, you know, the seventh in the league in runs scored. Now, it's going to be hard, because the strikeouts are eating away at their batting average, and they're eating away at the OBP, and OBP is life. OBP drives offense. So even though they're fifth in the league in walks, they're near the bottom in batting average and on base percentage, and it's very hard to have a good offense with a 300 on base percentage. So if you're going to strike out that much, when you're not striking out, you have to be really an all-time offense. And you know, so far they have. So far, when they're not striking out, they're drawing some walks and, and hitting for power. 
but I do think that if the Astros are going to win this division, and you know, ever since I wrote since I wrote that article, I believe they've lost once. They swept the Blue Jays over the weekend. Um, they lead the division. They've got a comfortable lead. And, you know, the closer we get to Memorial Day and we get into June, you got to start taking them seriously. Um, even if they don't win the division, you have to take them seriously as a contender. I mean, if you're going to, there's a team that might be in first place on July 1st, and that's a pretty good working definition of a contender. Um, you have to take them seriously. So. I do think that the Astros have flaws. I think beyond the offense, I just don't trust the back end of the rotation. I'm also not completely sold on Keiko and the Q. Um, I think they've been great for, what is it, eight months now. Um, but you look fundamentally, and I think we're talking about two guys who are more mid-rotation starters who are having their, their career best run as opposed to number one and number two. You look at the back end of that rotation, you know, Robert Hernandez and Asher Wojciechowski. You know, we'll see what happens. They called up Lance McCullers. And I was a little surprised only because I thought McCullers would make the majors as a reliever. I didn't think he'd actually make the majors as a starter. So we'll see how this works out. You know, eventually it'll be, you know, Papel. Eventually they call up Correa. It's a long-winded answer that, that basically says, yeah, I, I, I don't think that the fact that they strike out all the time keeps them from winning uh, long-term. I do think it limits the upside of the offense. You mentioned that uh, Dallas Keuchel and uh, and Colin McHugh more number three type starters than maybe top two type starters, and not for fantasy purposes or maybe for fantasy purposes and real baseball. Would you rather have uh, one, two, three, four, five starters, or would you rather have five good number three starters? Well, as the guy who basically tried to take five good number three starters and is finding himself, I've actually dropped out of our league, and I'm like in fourth place. I've been relegated already. This local fantasy league—it uh, hasn't really worked, and that's generally been my principle. I feel like, especially in a more shallow league, which is you know twelve-team mix that I'm in, I would rather lock in my offense and find pitching because I feel like, especially now in today's game where you know the advantage is really towards the pitchers, you can eventually stumble into a pitching staff, and it just—it it hasn't worked out. But I still believe in the strategy. I think in real baseball, it's a little bit different because you just don't get to stream. Um, you know, <laughs> if your starters aren't working out, you can churn from within your organization, but you can't churn from other organizations. I think it would, you know, if the Astros could go and pick up, you know, the, the seventh starter that the Red Sox aren't using, they would like to do that, but that's not the way the rules work. Uh, if I'm building a major league staff, I, I would be inclined to try to invest in true number one and true number, number two talent. If for no other reason, then uh, certainly when you make the postseason, you know having the best pitcher right. in a given game, the best of five or best of seven series, there aren't a whole lot of big advantages you can have, and it helps to have the best starting pitcher a couple of times. And sometimes more than a couple of times, Joe, they have changed the playoffs so that there are increased off days in a lot of series, which allows teams sometimes, especially in a seven-game series, you might see a number one starter three times and the number four, number five starter not at all. Yeah, I mean, it goes back and forth. I mean, you know, for every 2001 Diamondbacks, there's a 2014 Tigers. But just in terms of saying, okay, how do, what's going to give me the best chance? I think that having the, the, the that's why when the, when the A's traded for John Lester last year, I actually liked the deal. I didn't like giving a pass to Russell. I thought they overpaid, but at least I understood the idea that, look, at least in, you know, game one, game two of the postseason, we're going to put Lester and Gray on the mound, and that's going to make us more competitive than if we were putting, say, Gray and, I, don't even remember who. I guess it would have been Samarj at that point. Um, yeah, it, it just it makes them a better team. So you know, it's it, it's time. I think that I'd rather. But again, it's everything's a choice, right? I mean, the Astros. Uh, they, they, they you know they put their effort into you know they, they drafted George Springer 
with the 13th pick in the draft a few years back as opposed to taking a pitcher. So they made their choices. But uh, you know, in a perfect world, you have everything, right? In a perfect world, you've developed starting pitching and you've developed hitters, and you, know, you do what the Cubs have done. So you develop mm-hmm. hitters and you go out and buy your pitching. You've bought John Lester. This winter, you might go out and buy Johnny Cueto. And uh, there's your there's your one too. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. Uh, Joe, you're a New Yorker. Uh, you've been uh, following baseball your whole life. What do you make of the whole Alex Rodriguez situation, and what was your opinion of the uh, announcement that they were going to try to not pay that 660th uh, home run bonus? Well, it's been a great story. Uh, yeah, Alex Rodriguez has been treated about as badly as any athlete as any that, that we've seen uh, for a handful of people over the last 15 years, we've turned using sports drugs into a crime unlike any other when, frankly, it's not unlike what's happened that happened in the 15 years before that and the 15 years before that. And Rodriguez and Barry Bonds are probably the two guys who have taken the brunt of that. Certainly here in New York, I mean, the coverage of Bonds, uh, the, coverage, the coverage of Rodriguez has been, for lack of a better word, shrill. And uh, the stuff that's been written about him is just unconscionable. And I've certainly, I, and I wrote this at the start of the year, I, I was rooting for him. I've been rooting for him because I want him to basically take all the stuff that's been written and shove it up people's, you know, what. And to some extent, he's done that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, he's cooled off a little bit from the hot start. He's shown himself to be the hitter he's going to be, which is, you know, relatively low average, but he seems to be able to draw some walks, and when he hits the ball, it's going to go a long way. His, forget the slugging in the home runs, I mean, his, his exit velocity and things like that have actually been very strong. So, the, you know, when he's able to make contact, the ball's going a long way and it's, going, it's getting out of the yard. I think that's going to continue. I think he'll be a relatively low average, you know, 240, 250 hitter, but with good secondary skills. And I think it's a good story. As far as the Yankees are concerned, there's no argument here. And this just seems to be another case of, it reflects a few things. One is the unpopularity of Rodriguez, and the Yankees, I think, feel like if they take a position opposite Rodriguez, they're going to get the fans and the press on their side, which has happened to a certain extent. Um, I also feel like it reflects the current imbalance between management and labor relations in Major League Baseball. Um, we saw a little bit in the Josh Hamilton situation where the Angels basically were trying to get out of paying him because he had a relapse over, this, over the winter when there was right. absolutely no argument for them getting out of playing him. I think Owners, to some extent, are feeling their oats and, and feel like they can go after player contracts in a way that it you know, wouldn't have been the case when you know Don Fear and or Marvin Miller were running the union. But there's no argument here. The Yankees are just, uh, they're behaving in a penny-ante way that makes them not just look cheap, but looks, makes them look dishonest. This was clearly, whatever the letter of the contract is, it was clearly a means of paying Alex Rodriguez extra money that would be outside the, 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 the scope of his salary, that would be outside the scope you know, of luxury taxes and things like that. You know, they can call it a marketing agreement all they want, but it was bonuses for hitting the home run. And he hit the home run. He's probably going to hit, you know, there's a chance now that he gets to, at the very least, Henry Aaron, uh, Babe Ruth and Henry Aaron, you know, I should say, uh, Babe Ruth at 714 um, over the next three years. So this isn't the first time we're going to have this conversation, and I I expect that if this thing goes to arbitration, it's going to be it, it's going to end up in Rodriguez's favor. 
This is not really germane to fantasy baseball, but I'm curious be, fr- about your point of view on this. You mentioned Marvin Miller and you mentioned Don Fair, and you, I think, accurately said uh, that had either of those men been in charge of the union as its executive director, that uh, none of this would have happened or it would have been kiboshed in a, in a much more aggressive fashion, especially under Miller, I think, who was uh, absolutely a, a tiger on these kind of things. More recently, though, especially through the PED scandal, the union uh, did not come off as being quite as strong as it was in the Miller Fair days. And I'm wondering now that uh, Tony Clark, the ex-Detroit uh, Tiger and, and uh, other teams, uh, first baseman, is in charge of the union as its executive director. What have you seen from the, uh, from the interactions between the, unions, between the union and the uh, sport to indicate the, way that the, the strength of the union and the way it's headed? I don't think the union is very strong. I think that the, the dating back to 2001-2002, the use of the PED issue to split the union was wildly successful. I think I think MLB fell into it. Remember, MLB, you know, first dating back to the days of free agency, they spent you know, 15, 20 years saying the players are greedy, and then they spent another 10 talking about how the players wanted so much money they didn't care about you know uh, uh, fairness about uh, competitive balance. And then they fell into the PED issue, which turned out to actually be not just a wedge issue with the union, it turned out to be a, a good uh, tool for turning fans against players. And I think they've done a very good job of keeping that issue front and center in a way that's you know, weak in the union over the years. And uh, it's, it's, it's a situation that's gotten back. Now, it's, it's, gone, it's become a money issue for the union. MLB players take in about 38% of revenue, which is an incredibly low number when you consider that the players are the game. Um, and that just has to do with the way that the MLB has pushed its advantages over the last three uh, collective bargaining agreements. I think the money issues are kind of motivating the MLBPA to get off the mat and do something. I will say this. I, the track record of players' associations led by players as opposed to players' associations led by labor lawyers, is pretty stark. So I think MLB goes into the next CBA with a disadvantage. I think that it's not completely clear how they get to where they would like to get to. Uh, I think so long as PEDs are an issue in the, in the, in the big picture, it's going to be hard for them to get leverage. Um, I, I'm definitely pessimistic about the next round of CBA talks. Uh, I'm not sure how MLB rever- uh, the players reverse 15 years of losses. I certainly don't think they can do it in one negotiation. I thought it was instructive what, what you said about the owners falling into this issue, which allowed them to get the upper hand insofar as the public is concerned. And it always struck me, especially with Don Fair, that he didn't care what the public thought. He didn't care that the Joe Common Man, the ordinary fan, was not on the side of the players' union because he had, at the time, he had the cudgel and he wasn't afraid to swing it around. Yeah, and that's what you need. You actually need somebody up front who cares more about being right than about being popular. Right. Uh, Particularly in a sport like baseball, which tends to, when these things happen, you get a lot of coverage that's, you know, oh, you know, we played this game for, you know, it's a kid's game and why do they make it so much money? A lot of the coverage of sport of baseball labor's issues and baseball economics is really really bad so you pretty much have to punt on the idea that you're going to move the needle on the media argument move the needle on the fan argument and just get get make your arguments for your players at the table uh you know we'll see what happens i certainly the where we now have a situation where the owners have turned over the players have turned over and the management of uh, it should be the, 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 the player, the MLBPA office has turned over so much 
that the memory of 94-95, there's not a lot of institutional memory there. We'll see how that impacts the 2016-17 cycle because the, the, the memory of 94-95 hovered over the next few negotiations, like the idea that you could not possibly have a labor action because you had a labor action that lost you a World Series. And I wonder if the, the farther we, the further we get from that, the more likely it is we're actually going to have another uh, work stoppage. You mentioned uh, that unions, to be effective, probably can't have ex-players in executive leadership positions. And I, I thought of the example of Michelle Roberts, the new, uh, relatively new leader of the uh, NBA Players Association, and she's really uh, come out very aggressively with uh, comments that suggest, among other things, that the players don't need the owners at all and they could start their own league and in short order would be running the entire thing themselves, which of course is a, is a um, kind of a rhetorical shot across the bow pointing out that the players are the game and that anybody who suggests otherwise is kind of missing the point. Do you, uh, do you think that Tony Clark has that in him? No, I don't. Uh, everybody I know that's worked with Tony Clark has said wonderful things about him and an incredibly smart guy and I, guess I just circle back to the history of associations led by labor lawyers versus the ones led by players. That's my try. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe this will be the exception to the rule, and it will be good. You know, if that's the case for the players, I'm just I'm just going by history here. And the MLBPA could use a Michelle Roberts, who's really the closest thing to you know mirror or fear that anybody that the NBA, NHL, or well, Don Fear actually went to work for the NHL for a while. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that's not the best example. Certainly the best. Michelle Roberts is the closest thing to fear or Miller that the NBA or NFL has ever had. And I think it's a good thing for, for NBA players. And I think that certainly there's issues with the NBA because you have a, a payroll cap. And you have a payroll cap that was put into place when, at a time when the owners actually did open the books and prove that the league was going to go under or the league was in a lot of financial trouble. You go back to 1982 when this all started. Right. And in the last cycle... They actually wouldn't open the books. And generally speaking, if you're making a claim of financial distress and you're not willing to open your books, I get to call BS on your argument. And I think that when we get to the next CBA for the NBA, I think Michelle Roberts is going to be a little more aggressive about that than we've seen previously. And I'm not sure which comes first. I think the NBA's contract is up before MLB's. If Michelle Roberts extracts some big dough out of the NBA for its players, I'm sure some players in Major League Baseball are going to take notice. And don't you think that the uh, Major League Baseball has been insulated to a certain extent from any player arguments by the fact that they can give out a lower and lower percentage of the pie because the pie is growing so quickly that all of the players look at their situations and think, I've got things pretty good. Right, and because revenue growth has been so stark over the last 20 years, uh, players aren't really, might not feel that. feel like that. I mean, you look at the top-end salaries, you know, Scherzer and, and Kershaw crossing the $30 million barrier. Scherzer, technically not, but we'll, we'll go with it here. Um, you know, the top-end salaries have grown, but if you look at the median, if you look at the number of players you know, not getting paid, to, to use that term, uh, clearly the players are working at a disadvantage here. All of the rule sets have worked in favor of management. Uh, and, and I think that if you... This is why I say you don't... You really can't have a player rep, a player representing. You need somebody kind of... You kind of take a, an economic view of it, take a labor uh, a law view of it, and say, what is the overall situation for all of the players? What is the structure of the league, and how does everybody get compensated? And 
you know, we'll, we'll see if, if, if Clark can do that. I, I believe that Michelle Roberts is going to do that. I'm sure Michelle Roberts, the, the, the NBA owners are actually, I believe it's anticipated they're actually going to opt out of this deal in a couple of years. The NBA has all kinds of issues in terms of they signed a new TV contract that's actually going to blow up salaries because of the structure of the, uh, the, the way the, the, the salary cap is structured. So they have an incentive to pull out of this deal and, re- and negotiate a new one to keep from having to, to give X amount of dollars over the players. Um, I think that might cause their CBA negotiations to come forward in front of MLBs, but to be honest with you, Patrick, just having this conversation with you now, I am not sure which one comes first. I do think that each will influence the other. Joe, a few minutes ago you were talking about Barry Bonds, and Bonds made news this week by announcing that he intends to grieve uh, his situation after he finished his contract in San Francisco. Uh, He's alleging that the 30 major league teams colluded to prevent him from getting on a roster. You wrote something about this in your Joe Sheehan baseball newsletter, uh, positioning the piece as an amicus brief for the hearers of the uh, grievance to consider some fairly important ideas about how bonds can justify this claim. But first, Joe, why has it taken seven years for this to come to the point where bonds can make a complaint about it? The reason it's taken so long is that there was an agreement between the, so the, the PA and the owners to set this aside until bonds' uh, legal issues were, were uh, over. Now, now that bonds' utterly ridiculous uh, conviction on an obstruction of justice charge has been overturned, he's free to turn his attention to this. Uh, I believe that Bonds is colluded against. I, and I am only dealing with half of the argument, what, what I wrote. There's two planks to the argument. One is, there's absolutely no way that 30 teams would have passed on Barry Bones. The other half of that argument, is, the other half of the case is, can we prove that the owners were acting in concert? And if you go back to 85, 86, 87, the three collusion cases when the owners rigged the free agent market, there was documentation, and there was testimony. There was actual evidence of acting in concert. And I don't know if Bonds is going to be able to define that. I have no idea, and we'll leave this up to the lawyers. But as far as the idea that Barry Bonds should have been unemployed in 2008, it's utterly ridiculous. And that's basically what I was talking about in this article, making the point that there's no precedent for a player to have the year that Bonds had in 2007 to want to continue his career and to not be able to play. Uh, Bonds, even playing without the DH for most of his games, was still able to play in 120 games a year. He was one of the 35 best players in the game. He was one of the 10 best hitters in the game by any standard. He was intentionally walked in almost 10% of his at-bats, and he couldn't find a job the next year. So major league managers had pretty much made their statement about what they thought Barry Bonds could do. And you look around the league that winter, and you look at some of the decisions that were made. Yes, Barry Bonds was to some extent, toxic. He was unpopular because he was the face of the, the PED era, and he was never unpopular. But generally speaking, and, and this, Barry Bonds was always more unpopular with the media than he was unpopular with players, than he was unpopular with fans. Because Barry Bonds didn't treat the media very well, and that kind of poisoned the well to a certain extent with the, other, with the, with the fans. But if you look at some of the guys who have been signed, Milton Bradley was signed that winter to a one-year deal. And Barry Bonds wasn't. Yeah. Milton Bradley was signed to a one-year deal. Um, you look at the history of players who have been caught up in the PED scandals. You look at the history of players who have done bad things. Alfredo Simone, and this happened after Bonds. Alfredo Simone, um, and I'm going to forget the offseason here, forgive me. 
he was indicted for involuntary manslaughter. And while that case was pending, he threw 90 innings for the Orioles. You know, uh, there's no argument that said, there's basically fundamentally no argument that Barry Bonds was so different than all of these other players that we've tolerated, that all these players have tested positive. You know, we, the, the baseball industry has paid out over $100 million at this point to players who have failed a drug test or been suspended under the, the JDA and then gone on to continue their careers. There's no argument that Barry Bonds is any different. So I, I would say that half of the case is Pond's performance and the precedent. The other half of the case is going to be can you find you know, evidence of actual, you know, evidence that the owners colluded. Uh, but the first half of the case seems to me to be a stone lock. There's, it is, we're going to look back 50 years from now when we don't remember PED hysteria the way you and I do today, 50 years from now, people are going to look back and they're going to look at Barry Bonds 2007 and then not playing in 2008, and they're going to be absolutely unable to figure out what the hell happened. What struck me, Joe, is that the fans of certain teams that could have signed Bonds, you know, expecting maybe to gain a win or two in a competitive situation, but didn't and ended up just missing the playoffs or maybe uh, falling out in the first round of the playoffs, their fans should be outraged, but they won't be. Some fan bases are. I know that, that Mets fans tend to be a little bit vocal. They went into the year with Moises Alou in left field. And <laughs> if you're going to make the argument that Barry Bonds couldn't play left field because he was old and decrepit, I don't really think you want to defend that by making the argument that Moises Alou was your left fielder. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, you know, Moises Alou played in 14 games, and the Mets ended up playing a converted third baseman as Fernando Tatis in left field for part of that year. It's really hard to make the argument that defense mattered when you're playing Moises Alou and, and Fernando Tatis in left field. I think the uh, Blue Jays uh, fan base tends to be vocal. They had signed Frank Thomas to start the year. They released him three weeks into the season. And uh, I know with Matt Stairs getting a lot of DH time. And the, the Rays signed Cliff Floyd that winter, and that actually worked out for them. They actually Floyd played well in like 95 games, and they went on to uh, I believe they won the wild card. I don't remember if they won the wild card of the division that year, to be honest, but they made the playoffs. But yeah, I mean, Barry Bonds was a two to three win player and there are a number of teams that could have used two to three extra wins and you know, some teams got three replacement level performance out of left field you know, sub replacement level performance out of left field in DH. So there's absolutely no argument against Barry Bonds coming and helping team. And the argument that like people would have been unpopular he would have been unpopular, so what? You signed the the Rangers signed Milton Bradley. And Milton Bradley was, you know, poison at that point. Right. A lot of guys have been signed for, you know, Steve Howe. I mean, I you talk about be, you know, being from New York. I remember Steve Howe um, alternating between being suspended and being awesome for the Yankees for about a four-year period in the, or the early 1990s. You know, there's just, you know, you think about the, the cocaine trial. When I was growing up, the cocaine trials were the big uh, controversy. You go back to 83, 84. They stemmed from, from Pittsburgh, a guy named Curtis Strong, if I'm going to remember that correctly. Well, the guys who were caught up in that scandal ended up winning World Series rings for the 85 Royals, uh, Willie Wilson at least, and then the 86 uh, Mets with Keith Hernandez. So, like I say, Barry Bonds, the, 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 treating Barry Bonds as different than baseball has treated all of these guys throughout history, completely unprecedented. And I'll tell you what, I, I think maybe Bonds would have been booed the first time he came up for a home plate appearance, just like A-Rod did this year. But when he starts smacking it out of the park and winning games for your team, you know, the boos turned to cheers for A-Rod pretty readily this year already uh, in Yankee Stadium. And all is forgiven when you're hitting 10 home runs and driving in 30 in the early part of the season. Look at Nelson Cruz. 
Yeah. Nelson Cruz was suspended under the, the biogenesis uh, thing, came back, uh, and I don't think Orioles fans were booing him a whole lot last year. There was a, a hilarious shot. There was a guy earlier this year who was turning his back whenever Alex Rodriguez came to the plate in Baltimore. But he certainly wasn't turning his back when Nelson Cruz was hitting 40 bombs for his team last year. So, you know, again, we've, we've loaded up certain people with all of the venom without... We treated them differently. Bonds and Rodriguez, Clemens to a certain extent, McGuire. Sammy Sosa gets lumped in here when there's zero evidence that Sammy Sosa ever did anything. Sammy Sosa corked his bat once, and if that's what we're going to do, there's an awful lot of people throughout baseball history where we have to uh, excore. Um, yeah, the idea that, that some people have to be uh, treated differently when this crime is just committed, punished, and forgotten about for most players is one of the more frankly, disgusting aspects of the last 15 years. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. Uh, Joe, Bryce Harper is off to a sensational start, but he's tempted us before, so do you think this is the year we've all been expecting Bryce Harper becomes the superstar? Yeah, I think this is the first of a number of years in which Bryce Harper is going to be a superstar. You know, physical uh, frailty had been an issue for him over the last couple of years. Just couldn't stay healthy, couldn't stay in a lot. Of, but we'll see if that continues. I mean, the way he plays, he can run into a wall or you know, blow out a knee trying to make a catch, and all of a sudden we're right back where we started. But certainly he's a different hitter at the plate in terms of his plate discipline. He's always had the bat-to-ball skills. He's always had the, the power. So that's you know, some of what we've seen over the last few weeks here. Uh, I said so long, I said I'd still take, over the course of their careers, I, think, I still think Bryce Harper will outplay Mike Trout, and that's conceding that Trout, Trout's had a three-year advantage here, essentially. But Harper's power is all-time... Power. It's 600 home run power, and maybe even more than that. And you know, one of the interesting things is that Harper, you know, we'll see the offensive environments that Harper gets to play in. Uh, you know, does Harper does the game change that possibly allows Harper to have 50 home run seasons? Whereas, you know, if the if offensive levels don't go up, maybe he stops at 45 and he doesn't get to challenge records. But in terms of the talent, in terms of the the joy of watching him play and seeing how far he can hit baseball. I mean, this is real. This is who he's going to be. In a similar vein, how for real do you think Jock Peterson is in Los Angeles? I don't think he's this type of hitter. He's, I mean, he's, he's a good left-handed hitter with good power. I think the, the, the slugging that he's shown so far might be a little bit uh, high, although if you look at the, you know, we've now got all these statistics about exit velocities, how hard guys are hitting a ball, and, and he shows up high on those charts. So, you know, when he squares up a ball, it's actually going a long way. I, I'm surprised. I thought he'd be more of a... 275, the high on base percentage, like 375, like 480 hitter. So the extra 100 points of slugging are a little bit of a surprise to me. Uh, we'll see if he keeps it up. I don't think that's necessarily I think that um, I might come to a peak Shinsu Chu. Okay. In the sense that he can run 400 on base percentages and he'll slug close to 500, but probably not close to 600. Joe, uh, some news that just ha- has occurred while we're talking here on Monday morning. The Miami Marlins have fired manager Mike Redmond, and uh, general manager Dan Jennings has found the ideal candidate to replace him. He's going to go down and become the manager himself. What do you think? Well, I, I guess do you think Dan Jennings is a better manager than Jeff Conine, who was you know, last, yesterday's uh, rumored uh, selection. I'm, I'm surprised. I don't know a whole lot of Dan, uh, about Dan Jennings' experience, but I don't think he has any dugout experience whatsoever. He's been an exec, and like you, uh, I'm still processing this because we just got this news this morning. I'm stunned. I'm 
nothing should surprise me when it comes to the Miami Marlins. They could have made the home run sculpture of the manager, and it probably wouldn't <laughs> have surprised me. And I struggled to see the sense in this move, which isn't the first time I've said this about Jeffrey Loria's decisions. It's going to be really something to see, uh, and I wonder how the players are going to react to a to a suit basically coming down and and starting to tell them what to do out there. It's it's going to be a very interesting situation. It's funny you mention it's funny you mention that because it was the Marlins who last had a revolt against the manager. If you remember John Bowles, if I'm remembering the name correctly, he didn't have any playing experience, and that was there was basically a revolt against him. Uh, because he didn't have playing experience, and they just didn't respect him. And you know, fundamentally, the argument is: you'll have discussions over the years. Oh, you know, why can't why can't you have a guy in the dugout who you know knows not to bunt or knows about one run strategies or whatever? Right. And the argument is that you know players won't respect a manager who didn't have playing experience. For some reason, it's different in the NBA and the NFL. I don't know why. And we now have a, a similar situation where they're replacing, they're putting a guy in the dugout who's, as you say, a suit. So you know, we'll see how it, it goes from here. But it's, it's funny that it's the Marlins who a couple of years back made such a big deal about having a non-playing manager. I remember that uh, John Bowles situation. Uh, somebody said to me, these Miami Marlins, their players are revolting. <laughs> yeah, I suspect <laughs> the joke may be in reuse this summer. Joe, uh, finally, according to your Twitter feed, you don't think defensive shifts should be called shifts. Why not? I'm trying to change the conversation here. It's not shifts. It's just defense. You've got seven guys behind the pitcher, and you're just putting them where you think the ball is going to be hit. The same way that you have 11 guys behind the ball on a football field, and you put them where you think the ball is going to be thrown or run. We've got to get out of this idea that there's spots where those players, quote, should be, unquote, and just get to the idea that you're just taking these tools, these players, and putting them in the way of the baseball. And I think it will help. And one of the things, this came up, and I haven't chance to write about it yet. I was watching the Marlin, excuse me, the Mariners-Padres game a week ago, I guess. Maybe it wasn't Mariners-Padres. It was definitely the Mariners. Dave Sims. So Seth Smith chops a ball, gets jammed, chops a ball down the third baseline, and it's a hit. And Dave Smith Sims says, I beat the shift. So if this is what it's going to be every single time a player gets a hit against the shift, doesn't it also have to be that when a player hits a single up the middle, it has to be, well, we beat the conventional defense. I'm just tired of everything being put in this context of, oh, the shift is weird and unusual and strange, and, oh, we have to talk about it. It's not. Stop calling it a shift. It's just defense. Old habits die hard, though, in baseball especially, but remember in football for the longest time it was four down linemen, three linebackers, and then somebody comes up with the reverse and they call it the 34, then Buddy Ryan invents the 46 defense with the Bears named after the safety playing up close to the line in a very aggressive formation. These kind of things happen and it takes time to adjust maybe. Actually, the NFL is a great example because the NFL, yeah, used to be a 4-3 or a 3-4. That was how you defined your defenses. And to some extent that happens today, but if you watch a football game, they're just everywhere. Like the delineations between defensive linemen and linebackers are non-existent anymore. It's just you're putting athletes on the field and having them make plays. It looks nothing like defense would have looked you know, 30 years ago. I think the NFL is... And to less, I mean, the NBA is also an example of this. The NBA almost doesn't have... They've had to actually... I think they, didn't they take center off the, the all-star ballot? because there weren't enough true centers anymore. And NFL, actually, the NBA positional designations are all over the place now. Basically, you have guys who handle the ball, guys who shoot, and guys who are big. 
the, you know, the whole the, the power forward, small forward, shooting guard, point guard designation really is archaic. So the other sports have kind of moved along and just kind of gotten out of these boxes of, well, you know, like baseball as well, this is the short where the shortstop stands. And the other sports have been able to say, well, no, we're just, they're athletes and we're putting them where they should make plays. So I think baseball is actually a little bit behind the times on this. Baseball behind the times? Go figure. I think a lot of people are going to say, who cares what they call it? But I think the naming of things sometimes gives them certain attributes that may or may not be the most effective. And I think you're right in that calling it a shift seems to point out that it's different or abnormal compared to what it should be. Whereas if we give it a name like a 46 defense or anything along those lines like football does, that maybe we can get away from the fact that it's different and just focus in on does it work better at getting guys out. Well, eventually, do you even get to a point where you you trust your data so much to have, let's say if Ben Revere is batting against Brad Ziegler, do you go to five infielders as opposed to literally bring in a, have a fifth infielder because the chances of a fly ball in that matchup are just so incredibly low? Or vice versa, if Chris Young is facing, well, Chris Young, do you do you actually go to like three and a half outfielders and three infielders because the chance of a ground ball is so incredibly young, uh, incredibly low? And I think we're eventually going to see some really interesting alignments out of this. People, remember, we're still. It's only been about. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like moving defenses around. That concept has been around for seventy years, but it's only in the last five to ten years that we've collected enough data have the confidence in where balls are going to be hit. And I think until more and more left-handed hitters go against that, which isn't all that easy, it's, it's going to be something that, to watch. And if we talk about the infielders, this is the other reason I think calling it a shift is, is, is something I'd like to get away from. It's not the infielders as much as it's the outfielders. Outfielders are getting moved around a lot, but we don't, know, we don't talk about it as much. But there are a ton of plays every day where it looks like it's going to be a ball in the gap, and it's not a ball in the gap because an outfielder was shaded over 10 feet, and he gets to it. And, again, it's it's all just defense. And it's all just names. You mentioned the NBA, Joe. When I was growing up, the players were numbered 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 from point guard up through the center. And in the last 10 years, because of the way that they use players, they change the mix of players on the floor. What's LeBron James? Sometimes he brings the ball up as a one, as a point guard. Sometimes he plays shooting guard, or effectively plays shooting guard. Sometimes small forward. He even posts up as a center. He plays the wing. As, he plays power forward. It doesn't matter, because the point is they're trying to get him out there in the best position to simply succeed. And on defense, throughout the course of a season, LeBron will guard everybody. Right. He'll guard everybody from a one to a five. And maybe it makes more sense for us to look at baseball players the same way. He's not an infielder. He's not an outfielder. He's just a defender that we're trying to put directly in the path of the ball. It's just a matter of, uh, of changing up our thinking of that in, in baseball. You know, it's going to have some, some real impacts in how we evaluate defense, individual defensive performance. I mean, you'll remember, what was it, three years ago that Brett Lowry had some... The, Brett Lowry was basically breaking the system that BIS used because he was being used as a shifter. They were playing him in short right field, and he was ending up with these crazy put out these crazy numbers because the system couldn't handle a third baseman making a play in short right field. Right. Defense, more than ever, is a group concept. It is the scouting, the, the analytics group, giving the data to the manager. It's the manager positioning the fielders to make plays, and it's the pitchers pitching to the defense. So for the sake of argument, if you're 
you know, shifting a, a left-handed hitter, and you've got three guys to the right of second base, well, okay, you've got to make sure that you're not throwing fastballs on the outside corner. You, you can't make it easy for that hitter to go, to go to left field. So defense in baseball is more of a team concept than it's ever been before. Well, I love that idea of Revere versus Ziegler and having five or six infielders and just basically daring him to be to be able to get a, get the ball in the air when the the statistical likelihood of it is vanishingly small. I think that's going to be very interesting, and you're going to hear a hue and cry from the broadcast booth that this isn't baseball. And Rob Manfred will set, step up and say we ought to outlaw it before everybody yells at him and tells him to shut up. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be super fun and exciting. I think uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe. Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. And Joe, as you know, during the season, I always like to ask our experts to talk about studs and duds. Any uh, definition you want to put on it is fine. We'll start with uh, some hitters, then we'll go to some pitchers. Let's start in the American League. Who's a stud hitter that's really catching your eye? I kind of look for undervalued and overvalued at this point. Sure. As we're into the season, we want to say, okay, who are the guys that are going to step up over the, the next four months and just kind of put some context here into what we're talking about. Um, I was at Xander Bogarts, and Xander Bogarts is somebody who I like coming into the year. He hasn't really hit so far, but the strikeout and walk date is still pretty good. 19 strikeouts, 10 walks. That's, you know, for a 21 year, 22, 22-year-old middle infielder um, in today's game, that's actually pretty good numbers. It shows that he's not being overmatched. Just eight extra base hits so far this year, and I think that's the number that's going to go up in the second half. Obviously, the context of that Red Sox lineup should still be pretty good, so he'll have a lot of runs in RBIs. He's somebody who I think is somebody worth picking up right now if you can get him cheap. In the National League, how about a stud hitter in the senior circuit? I'm going to die on this hill. Jason Hayward's still a guy that I'm on. and Hayward has been a huge disappointment for the Cardinals so far this year. Started the year hitting second. He's now hitting seventh. He's hitting eighth sometimes. Um, hasn't hit, Hasn't driven the ball whatsoever, but you look at the athleticism, uh, and I just I cannot believe that this is the player that he's going to be with four months of free agency. I think that he's got a big second half in him. Turning to the guys who might be overvalued, uh, the duds, how about in the American League, a hitter? Nelson Cruz has obviously been the best story in the uh, American League so far, arguably the, the most valuable player in the American League so far. Uh, his homer to fly ball ratio is completely out of whack with the numbers he's put up in the rest of his career. It's over 30%. That number is going to drop, and there's just not a whole lot else there in his skill set. His skill set is essentially hitting the ball a long way. And when those fly balls stop going and they start landing on the warning track, his numbers are going to drop precipitously. Um, strikeout to walk ratio is not very good. He's only walked unintentionally nine times so far this year. Um, so I think that he's going to go back to being the 240-250 hitter with decent but not great power that he's typically been for most of his career. Well, I hope you're wrong. He's on my tout team and he's carrying it. So, <laughs> How about in the National League, a dud hitter? Yeah, I like Starling Marte a lot coming into this year. Uh, but it's very, really a very strange year. He's another guy who's got a huge homer to fly ball ratio, completely out of whack, but he's not a fly ball hitter. He's actually been much more of a ground ball hitter this year. So it's a very odd mix of talents, but I, I, as much as I like the player coming into the year, I find it hard to believe he's going to sustain the numbers that he's put up so far this year. He's somebody I'm, I'm definitely backing away from a little bit. Joe Sheehan's stud hitters Xander Bogarts and Jason Hayward, his duds are Nelson Cruz and Starling Marte. Joe, let's move over to the mound, back to the American League. Who's a stud pitcher you really like? Well, I wanted to mention a couple of relievers in the segment. So uh, I don't know if you've, you've seen, Nathalie uh, Feliz has just fallen apart in Texas. And I think there's some opportunity, some saves opportunity there for Sean Tolleson. Sean Tolleson been good for them in recent years. He's been fantastic so far this year, an 8-1 to strikeout to walk ratio as you and I are having this conversation. There's a chance that Tanner Shepherds gets the closer role, but 
I think Shepard's is just not somebody who's ever been able to stay healthy and effective. I think Tolleson's got a good chance to be a 15-20 save guy over the rest of the season. And in the National League, a stud pitcher over there. Steven Strasburg has basically the largest gap between his actual performance and the results he's gotten. Uh, you can look at a lot of that, that uh, Nationals rotation. Gio Gonzalez fits this as well. Um, I think that Strasburg is somebody everybody's running away from right now because he's getting a rate over six. But the raw skills are still there, the velocity, the command, uh, the strikeouts and walks still look good. Um, he's somebody I'm really trying to jump on and in, in trying to actually pick him up in this mixed league because I think he's going to step forward over the rest of the year and be the guy we expected him to be. Moving over to the duds, uh, who's an American League dud? A little concerned about Greg Holland. Um, he missed time with the oblique injury. He's got a six strikeouts and six walks in ten innings so far. He's had a couple of really shaky outings. He, I think we saw him. People saw the nationally televised game against the, uh, the the Tigers, where he threw a thirty, it was like a thirty-three pitch tenth inning. Uh, the command just hasn't really been there. Uh, I, I'm a little concerned about him going forward. I, I, especially with the presence of Wade Davis there. There's, I think, there's enough of a chance that Holland, you know, at least loses that job for some of the rest of the season, and Davis ends up picking up five to ten saves. And finally, the National League, who's a dud over there? I love Michael Walker. Um, I think he's a great pitcher. I think he's been a great story. I think he got really hosed in the playoffs last year, Mike Matheny putting him into an impossible spot. He's off to a great start this year, five wins, uh, ERA around two. But the strikeout rate isn't there. Actually, a fairly mediocre strikeout-to-walk ratio for somebody with those numbers. And one of the concerns with him is, is longevity. Um, he's yet to throw more than about 160 innings as a pro. And there were, there's definitely going to be a time where the Cardinals are going to have to sit him down, lower his workload. I mean, he's coming off a shoulder injury last year. So I put all that together, and he's somebody I'm looking to get out from under over the rest of the year. I think you're going to have both a performance concern and an availability concern with Waka. So Joe Sheehan's pitchers, the studs, uh, Sean Tolleson and Steven Strasburg, his duds are Greg Holland and Michael Waka. Boy, Joe, this has been uh, great fun and very interesting as well. Tell us where listeners can keep track of Joe Sheehan. The best thing to do is follow me on Twitter at Joe underscore Sheehan. I get all the information on what I'm working on there. Uh, the newsletter, you can get information for that at joesheehan.com, uh, sixteen ninety five for six months. If you like baseball, right? If you like baseball or if you can read English, you know, you're basically my target market, so a few people will check that out. And then uh, Sports Illustrated. I'm actually, I mentioned earlier, I got a piece this week on uh, the on great starts that aren't no hitters. I'll have a look back next week, uh, kind of looking at the, you know, the things you've seen in the first quarter of the season that are real and some things that are not. Think about D. Gordon, the Houston Astros, you know, some of the, you know, are these things real or are they going to fall apart? So Sports Illustrated, Twitter, and the newsletter are the three things I'm going to right now. I do a lot of radio, uh, do a lot of podcasts, do a lot of guesting. Always enjoy that, Patrick. Uh, very, yeah. I, I, I'm not kissing up to the host here. Very little do I enjoy as much as we get to sit down a couple times a year and talk baseball. It's a lot of fun for me. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you saying so, Joe. Uh, by the way, remember that's Joe underscore Sheehan. Otherwise, you get a nice gentleman in St. Louis uh, who's been pretty good about it. <laughs> and, and let me let me tell you a story. Um, baseball prospectus will run things from the archives. They call it the Wayback Machine. They ran an article by me on Bonds last week, and when they sent out the promotion of it on Twitter, they actually made the mistake. And he let me know about that. So even Baseball Prospectus gets this wrong. And I was at Baseball Prospectus for 700 years. So it's amusing. He's always been very patient with it. He's a nice man. I'm eventually going to get to St. Louis and buy him a very expensive dinner for all the nonsense he's had to put up with over the years. And uh, that, that would be great for him, too. I hope he likes baseball. 
He does actually. I mean, not to the extent that you know, I think you and I are crazy about it, but he enjoys it enough to where he understood the conflict and follows me on Twitter. And he, I actually compliment the newsletter. He enjoys it. So uh, he's a baseball fan the way like normal people are baseball fans. Not like you know you or I. And it's important to note that if you're just somebody who enjoys baseball, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're in, into it a little deeper than than most. But even if you're just a, a fantasy player with a home league team, sign up for Joe Sheehan's baseball newsletter. It's really interesting all the time. Joe, thanks a million. Really appreciate it. We'll catch up with you again uh, at least once more during the year. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. Joe Sheehan writes the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, also writes for Sports Illustrated. Uh, you heard about his contact information, so Track down Joe Sheehan and get involved. Uh, next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Playing Time, and Frequent Flyers, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you very much. I gotta, I gotta thank all of you, all the fans here in San Francisco. Road and home, it's been fantastic. I want to thank you all. I gotta thank my teammates for their support. Through all this, you guys have been strong and you've given me all the support in the world and I'll never forget it, as long as I live. Thank you. I gotta thank my family, my mother, my wife Liz, my kids, Nikolai, Shikari, and Asia. I'm glad I did it before you guys went to school. Thanks for being here. I got to thank the Washington Nationals for your support. Thank you for understanding this day. It means a lot to me. My dad. Thank you for everything. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. With the season underway, BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long. With content like Playing Time Tomorrow roster analysis, this week looking at a dim future for Blue Jays knuckleballer R.A. Dickey and other news from the American League East, Stephen Nickrand has both an in-depth facts and fluke spotlight on Arizona right-hander Ruby De La Rosa, as well as a starting pitcher buyer's guide column on early sell-high candidates. Playing time today looks at Sean Markham joining the Indians' rotation, Danny Duffy staying in the Royals' rotation, Kenny Vargas getting sent down by the Twins, and much more. BaseballHQ.com updates content every day across a great range of information and tools like our buyer's guide skills assessment columns performance validation in facts and flukes roster changes in playing time today and tomorrow there's daily matchups team coverage minor league scouting as well as our projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and it's only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners at baseballhq.com now it's time for our regular tuesday commentaries coming up we have playing time and frequent flyers, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Houston shortstop prospect Carlos Correa is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. While the Chicago Cubs and their highly touted farm system have been the talk of baseball this spring, it's the equally youthful Houston Astros that stand atop the AL West after the first 40 games of the season. And unlike the Cubs, their top prospect, Carlos Correa, has yet to reach the majors. 
The 20-year-old Korea was the first overall pick in the 2012 draft, and with the recent promotion of Chris Bryant, Korea is arguably the best prospect still in the minors. The toolsy and athletic Korea can do it all on the baseball field. He's a slick defender with good range and a plus arm. At 6'4", 205 pounds, he's bigger than your typical shortstop and could be moved to third base down the road, but he does use his size well at the plate. After hitting just six home runs in an injury-shortened 2014 season, Correa has already blasted seven home runs to go along with 19 doubles and 15 stolen bases this year. Correa started the year at AA Corpus Christi where he hit 385 with a 726 slugging percentage to earn an early season promotion to AAA. And for the year, he's hitting 379 with a 453 on base percentage and a 693 slugging percentage. He's got 18 walks and 28 strikeouts and 140 at bats. With the light hitting Marwin Gonzalez the only thing standing between Korea and full time at bats in the majors, he is definitely a player to watch over the next several weeks. Once he is called up, the 20 year old Korea is a must own in all formats and at his peak has the tools to hit 300 with 20 home runs and 20 stolen bases. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Chris Maloney, Colby Garapi, Nick Richards, Matt St. Germain, Brent Hershey, and Alec Dopp have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage continues with the regular scouting column, The Eyes Have It. Jeremy Deloney goes on the road to scout White Sox prospects Matt Davidson, Trace Thompson, and others, as well as prospects from the Reds, Tampa, Toronto, Cleveland, and Detroit. Our call-ups coverage includes Houston right-handed starter Lance McCullers, Philadelphia third baseman Michael Franco, and many more. Our watch list report looks at players who appear closer to a call-up than maybe some of their more well-known prospect peers. In the latest edition, Alec Dopp looks at minor leaguers who could be called up soon like Atlanta second baseman Jose Peraza, San Diego first baseman Cody Decker, perennial prospect right-hander Philippe Omont of the Phillies, and many more. It all adds up to, if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, looking at situations that could mean changes in which players could be getting more chances or riding the pine. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the San Diego Padres' infield situation. The early struggles of Jed Jerko and Will Middlebrooks have created few playing time ripples in the San Diego infield. Jerko's hitting just 212 through his first 91 plate appearances, and Middlebrooks has been even worse, with a 202 mark so far this season. Jerko and Middlebrooks were both starters at second and third base, respectively, to start the season, but they've given way lately to Jan Gervis Salarte and Corey Spangenberg. Salarte has had a hot start to the season with a 287 batting average that's backed by a solid 87% contact rate and a 137 hard contact index. Remember, the league average there is 100. Salarte has appeared in and likely qualifies at first base, second base, and third base in most league formats. His contact gains, coupled with our hard hit ball data, say that he's one to watch this season. Corey Spangenberg has emerged recently as well, and he's flipping with Salarte at second and third base in recent games. Spangenberg hit two homers on May 14th against the Nationals, and he's shown decent plate patience with an 11% walk rate and above-average power in a small sample 65 at-bats this season. Spangenberg was given a 7C prospect rating by BaseballHQ.com, and his prospect write-up notes that his ability to hit the ball to all fields gives him starting infield upside in the long term. 
keep an eye on Spangenberg and Salarte and San Diego's infield. If they continue to hit, you know, Middlebrooks and Jerko continue to struggle, there could be a changing of the guard. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every Tuesday. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers include Freddie Galvis, Keone Kayla, and Preston Tucker. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Looking strictly at batting average, who is the best shortstop in the National League? Is it Troy Tulowitzki? No. Starlin Castro? No. Johnny Peralta? No. Ian Desmond? No. Jimmy Rollins? No. It's Philadelphia's Freddie Galvis. Not only is he currently the best tag shortstop in the National League, but he is the third best batting average in the NL through Sunday and is ranked in the top five among all major league hitters for batting average. That's right, Freddie Galvis is currently batting 347 through 36 games. That puts his average above Anthony Rizzo's at 344, Bryce Harper's at 338, and Paul Goldschmidt's at 333 with a comparable number of games and at bats. Although we may not have the home run production of those three, not many people would have guessed that Galvis would have a batting average roughly 56 points higher than that of Mike Trout at this point in the season. Perhaps these comparisons are unfair, maybe even extreme, but they do point to the fact that Galvis should not be ignored in leagues. Galvis has refined his hitting approach and is not striking out as often. However, the nearly 100-point differential between his batting average and XBA could indicate a change is coming. Please remember... All of the players mentioned in this segment are long shots, but, like Freddie Galvis, could be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Our next frequent flyer is considered by many to be the closer of the future in Texas. Perhaps the very near future after Neftali Feliz blew his third save of the season on Saturday night. Capable of hitting triple digits with his fastball, Keone Kella owned a 254 ERA through three seasons of the minors, and struck out 135 batters in 99 and a third innings. Kella earned his way onto the Rangers roster by striking out 11 hitters in 10 appearances during spring training this year. If Lee's 5.51 ERA and three blown saves in nine opportunities are an early warning signal, a change may be coming to the closer role in Texas sooner rather than later. Go grab Kella while you can. Finally, let's shift gears and talk about a power-hitting outfielder who may be flying under the radar in your league. Preston Tucker, the 24-year-old outfielder who was recently called up to the Houston Astros, led the minor leagues with 10 home runs in only 25 games. In fact, at the time of his call-up, he was leading the Astros' AAA affiliate, the Fresno Grizzlies, in 10 separate offensive categories. Since his call-up, Tucker has continued his hot-hitting ways. Through his first seven games, Tucker is batting 333 with a 985 OPS. Although he was only expected to be at the big league level for a few days while George Springer was placed on the seven-day DL with a concussion, Tucker made a very good impression. Good enough for the Astros to send Robbie Grossman to AAA rather than sending Tucker back. And if you want to make a good impression on your league, consider adding Freddie Galvis, Keone Kella, and Preston Tucker, our frequent flyers of the week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. 
Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, May the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 27 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday edition of the show, Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. It's always a great pleasure to talk with Joe and to read the newsletter, and I recommend both very highly. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'll have a Facts and Flukes spotlight on Los Angeles Angels outfielder Cole Calhoun coming to the BaseballHQ.com site very soon. And in the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly though, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular News and Notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That'll be the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.